welcome to the first episode of our new ESG Paradigm Shift series. Episodes in this series will examine different angles of the ESG phenomenon and its broader implications for finance and prosperity. Something bigger is happening in markets. Is ESG just a symptom of more fundamental shifts? Hi, everyone. Welcome back to ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen, and today I have Rick Alexander joining me. Uh, Rick's article recently in the flurry of ESG articles being published in September 2022, and I guess back to August probably as well, He his article called From Meta to Twitter, What Everyone Gets Wrong About ESG and Why It Matters really caught my eye, and so we wanted to have Rick on to talk about this. Rick has an incredible wealth of experience. He's the founder of the Shareholder Commons, an organization dedicated to creating responsible ownership throughout the investing chain. And prior to founding TSC, Rick served as head of legal policy at B-Lab and spent 31 years at Morris Nichols Arshton Tunnel LLP, practicing corporate law, including four years as managing partner. For over 20 years, Rick has served as a member of the Delaware Corporation Law Council, the body responsible for maintaining the Delaware General Corporation Law, the nation's premier corporate statute. In Rick's work for the council, he's played a leadership role in drafting and shepherding important corporate legislation, including provisions protecting shareholders from mandatory arbitration, enabling proxy access, implementing majority voting, and authorizing public benefit corporations, Delaware's version of the benefit corporation. Rick, we're so grateful to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. No, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, we, so, you know, we connected about your article, but just our fun question we'd like to start off with to break the ice a little bit. I wanted to ask what music you're streaming. Well, you know, for me, music is all about trying to keep my pace up when I run. And just so everyone understands, I'm not a fast runner uh, and I'm recovering some from some injuries. So I'm especially not fast, but I like to f- find things that's new and then I pace up. And I also like rely uh, on my, my kids who are not kids anymore uh, to sort of suggest things. So lately, Nako has been, a, is a, he, he really keeps me moving. Um, but also I kind of like tripped onto some 90s kind of ska and uh, reggae rock and sublime and dirty heads. And it's great stuff uh, for, for, for runners. I recommend it. Fun stuff. So we know you're a runner and we know you like 90s. <laughs> oh, awesome. Awesome stuff. What a fun way to start. Well, let's let's talk a little bit first about your career. So Rick, you've had an incredible career in corporate law. And, and I know that, um, or I would assume that seeing um, so many changes and being part of so many of those changes has informed your thinking on um, ESG more broadly. So I'd love to start there. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question because like, I, I feel like when I look back on it, the, the arc of my career has been a little bit, you know, following like my changing ideas uh, about how you structure an economy that makes sense. I mean, as you said, I, I worked in Delaware for, for over 30 years as a corporate lawyer doing mostly transactional work. I mean, I ended up in court sometimes, but for the most part, I was advising clients about raising money, doing mergers, uh, dealing with uh, corporate control struggles, you know, often, but not always public companies. And all that work was sort of based on like a really simple idea, which is shareholders put their money into companies. 
and then they elect directors and the directors have a fiduciary duty, you know, to make money for the shareholders. And if you kind of follow, you know, just sort of basic market economics, the idea is that that's that technology is kind of what's helped us to to get to the material wealth we have today. This the idea that if you everybody pursues their own, you know, private interest, that helps us to allocate resources and figure out how many three quarter inch machine machine screws to make. And it works much better uh, than like a command economy like they tried in the Soviet Union and the you know the Mao days in 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 China. And and it seems like our system works a lot better and creates a lot more wealth. And so I felt like you know, I, I was making a good living, but I also felt like I was contributing uh, to an economy that made sense because, and, and, you know, just, you know, cards on the table, I'm on the liberal side, you know, politically, and I, I didn't think companies should just run roughshod over, over the, you know, the environment or their workers, but I thought that was something that the government would do. So, you, you know, government would regulate all those important social environmental issues and within that regulation, companies would maximize return to shareholders. And that's how we got to this great place that we're at. But, you know, although we do seem to have a lot of material wealth, you know, if you if you follow things, you see some of that material wealth seems to come from some borrowing that we're doing from the planet. Uh, and, and those bills, you know, whether it's climate change, plastics pollution, deforestation, some of those bills seem to be coming due and nobody's worrying about it. And companies just seem to keep doing the same things in pursuit of profit. So one could begin to worry whether, you know, really the only way to set up companies is this value maximization model that Delaware uses. At some point, like in the late aughts, uh, you know, this nonprofit B-Lab was formed and they came up with this idea of, well, let's, let's figure out how to give companies a structure where they can pursue profits, but also give equal consideration to the interest of shareholders, of, of their workers and the communities in which they operate and their customers. And people might say, well, wait a second, think about all those things when you run a company. And it is true that you have to think about all those things, but ultimately they're instrumental to making a profit. So, you know, if, you know, it's in the best interest to pay your, you know, the most efficient wage you can get from a profit production standpoint is below the living wage. And that is the case for many retail companies. That's what you pay. You don't think about any further. You just want to make sure that they're, that they're there. You can't pay them nothing, but you, you pay them enough to be efficient. And so, you know, B-Lab wanted to think about, was there a better way to run companies? And and part of their thinking was just to come up with a system where you could measure and manage your impact if that's what you care about as a company. But part of what they came up with was a legal structure that they called the Benefit Corporation. And that legal structure would actually change the obligations of directors so that they would no longer be required to prioritize their shareholders over everything else. They could give equal priority to the environment and to society. And so... I got in, they came to Delaware and said, why don't you, why don't you all adopt this form? And, and as, as you said, when you were reading my biography, at the time I served on this council, it's a, just a part of the Delaware bar where we look at proposed legislation to Delaware's corporation statute, which for like a lot of weird historical, uh, very contingent reasons is the leading corporation statute in the U.S. So 
So we take these things seriously when someone comes to us, but we, we didn't take it very seriously when B-Lab came to us. We said, oh, that's cute. You know, Ben and Jerry's, that's very hippy dippy, but we don't, we don't do that. We do shareholder primacy. They were persistent uh, and they came back and they pushed, they pushed us. They, they asked the governor to push us. And, and eventually we, we did take it seriously. And I ended up getting tasked with taking a serious look at this idea of the benefit corporation. And in doing that, like one of the things I read was just from the late Professor Lynn Stout. She had written a book and, and in it she said, you know, people have interests, but if you had a person who only looked after their own interest and didn't look after anything else, you would call that person a sociopath. And why do we want to have a law that says by law, corporations have to be sociopathic? Why can't they care about other things? And I thought, hmm, that's a pretty good idea. And so that got me very interested. And eventually I got so interested that in addition to working on the statute, I went to work for B-Lab. And as head of legal policy there for four years, I helped promote this idea that corporations could, you know, adopt a structure legal, but also just the way they run themselves, where they gave equal priority to, to other stakeholders as well as their shareholders. And, and couldn't that help to address some of these issues like climate change, like growing inequality, like deforestation. But as good as that idea is, what I, what I found as I worked there is that individual companies can't do this alone because they operate within a system where, within a financial system that's really set up to maximize the value for shareholders. So it's great if a company that has one owner wants to do this. But let's say they decide to raise money and go to private equity or do an IPO and raise money from the public. All of a sudden, they're going to be owned by shareholders who might not think that same way. And so as a result of that and a lot of internal work, I spun out as a separate NGO called the Shareholder Commons. And as you can tell from the name, our idea is to take that that B-Lab, that benefit corporation idea and, and apply it at the shareholder level and, and talk about why it's in the interest of shareholders to talk about, to think about the companies they own in a way that doesn't require each individual company to, um, to maximize its own value. So this is, this is pretty controversial, right? I mean, to just say, hey, I mean, we're talking about some pretty big concepts here. And so I want to read just one sentence from, from the um, essentially second line of your, of your article that I mentioned at the beginning of the call. And maybe we can use that as a jumping off point. You say, every investor that holds a diversified portfolio is threatened by destructive corporate behavior. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So that's the right question when you want to sort of think about what it is that the shareholder commons does. So, so we start from the proposition that, you know, the modern investing world is governed by something called modern portfolio theory. And, you know, believe it or not, 75 years ago, if you were like a foundation or endowment, you weren't allowed to invest in common stock, even though you had to invest in like AAA or AA plus bonds, you know, very, because it was considered too risky if you were a fiduciary. There were these things called legal lists that said, 
you can only select from these very safe kinds of investments because you don't want to put your, your beneficiaries' assets at risk. And then some people, Stuart Markowitz, you know, among them, sort of said, well, wait a second, those bonds don't generate a lot of income because you, you trade off risk for reward. And if you want to make money for your beneficiaries and their retirees, make sure they can pay for their retirement, they ought to be able to buy common stock. And you know what? If they diversify, if they buy lots and lots of common stock, they can get the benefit, that extra uh, return that you get for buying a risky stock, but diversify away all the, the market risk. You can't diversify away the risk that an individual company, I mean, you can't get rid of the risk that an individual company will go bad, but by diversifying, that, that's not going to kill your portfolio because you own... So you buy, say, the S&P 500. So you're indexed and you're getting the high return. And so that's the, that's the, the, the nugget uh, that is modern portfolio theory. So now, like all investors, not all investors, but all like professional investors, you know, own lots and lots of stocks. And, you know, what that means is if you have an individual company in your portfolio that does something, uh, pollutes, you know, treats people badly, something that is bad for the economy, that's a bad trade for you. Even though you're a shareholder of the company, you only benefit a little bit of your portfolio from the profit that company gets. But your portfolio suffers most of, of the loss because if it's something that affects GDP, you know, it's going to affect the return of your portfolio. Makes sense. And so, so we talk a lot about externalities, right? Of, you know, climate change or civil unrest or, you know, the things that it's not any one company or one entity's fault. It's kind of everybody's problem, but nobody wants to step up. That's an externality, right? So it sounds like what you're saying is that in modern portfolio theory, or because most of us hold portfolios, I mean, if you only own one stock, it's a bad idea. <laughs> I'm not. Supposed, I'm sure I'm not giving investment advice. I'm not qualified to do that. But <laughs> reflecting on on common sense, that would probably not make sense. So if we're talking about a, a portfolio level where we're looking at the health of, say, my individual assets or a company's assets, and uh, all of those companies have to bear the cost of the externality, right? So whether that's climate related or or whatever, civil unrest related, rule of law related, or whatever it is, your whole portfolio suffers because the whole portfolio ends up bearing the cost of externality. Is that what you're saying, Kevin? That's exactly right. And I wanna I wanna okay. drill on one thing that you said, which was sort of this idea that, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of everyone, you know, and that's like a classic Great, you know, we're called the shareholder commons from this idea that, you know, in the old days you had a, a commons that everyone in the village would use for their livestock to graze. But if everyone had a temptation to let their livestock overgraze, and as a result, like if there were no rules, there wouldn't be a commons for anyone to graze. So everyone would suffer, but nobody had the right incentive. This has also been like mathematized as the Econ 101. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so there's a lot of things that are like that, where you need to say to each company, 
you know, in the prisoner's dilemma matrix, it's always in your interest to overgraze. But in the interest of the, the um, if, if you look at the interest of the village as a whole, here being like the shareholders, the diversified shareholder, it's going to hurt them. And, and so, and, and in fact, like even the individual, it's ironic that even the individual company is hurt by that. And I'll tell you that we recently released um, a couple of case studies, one on climate change, one on antimicrobial resistance. And so about, you know, respectively how companies expend too much carbon or use too much antibiotics in their supply chain. And we have little prisoner's dilemma matrices in there to show like exactly how this works. And that's one type of, ex, you know, that's one sort of externality of, of grazing the commons. But I should say there's also externalities where even one company can cause so much damage with its business model that it can hurt, you know, the commons that its diversified shareholders rely on. And you mentioned that, you know, our article was called from, from Meta to Twitter. And, and, you know, those are just examples of a company. Like you think about Meta, which has the platforms, you know, Facebook and Instagram, uh, you know, WhatsApp and others. Uh, and, and they actually, you know, every day, 3 billion people go on those platforms. That, that's like, you know, there's no company that has more influence over the world uh, than Meta. And so if you remember about a year ago, uh, there was a whistleblower, Francis Haugen, who said, you know, they know that they're hurting their users with the way their algorithm works. And what we say in that article is, well, it's true. Everything that Francis Hawkins said is true. They're hurting users. They're hurting all these different constituencies, but they're not, and they're, and they're prioritizing their profits over those users. And the point we make in the article is, well, when you hurt users and like, you know, have put out misinformation and like increased vaccine hesitancy, that weighs on the economy. So, so in fact, they're not just hurting their users and other constituencies, they're hurting their own shareholders to the extent those shareholders are diversified. So you can have both, so my point is simply that you can have both kinds of externalities. You can have these externalities that are very much grazing the commons problem, but you can also just have business models that are very noxious uh, to the economy. So interesting. It's, it's, a really, it's a really fascinating concept. I'll read one other just because it's so so succinct, where you say, you write, I believe the directors fail to meet their fiduciary duty when they ignore negative impacts on their own diversified shareholders. So now we're into fiduciary duty. Tell us, how do you believe that these companies are failing to meet fiduciary duty? So, you know, what has been established in Delaware, and let's just talk about Delaware because there's different like flavors, but Delaware is, is the most important jurisdiction in the U.S., especially for public companies. So it's been established and it's, you know, I would say non-controversial that Delaware is a shareholder primacy state. I referred to, to Lynn Stout earlier. She and other academics like actually dispute that and say, well, that's not really true. But I, I think, you know, I, I, you know, I operated there for, for many years and like everyone in the courts, the legal advisors, directors, executives, they all know that they're running the company for the business, for the, you know, 
for the benefit of, of their shareholders. That's why the shareholders get to elect the directors and that's how it works. But, but what's assumed, but what hasn't really been, you know, really examined uh, in the courts, there's this assumption that the way you maximize, you know, value for shareholders is to maximize the financial returns from your company, the, the risk-adjusted, discounted cash flow, sort of the capital asset pricing model idea, this idea that what's a company worth to a shareholder, the cash flows that they're going to get from owning those shares over the, the next year is properly discounted. And I, I guess the, the point I've been trying to make, you know, here today is, but most of those shareholders are diversified. In fact, the only reason they can even own common stock is because they diversify to get rid of that big idiosyncratic risk. And so ignoring that, they do so at their peril. There's actually a, a new paper out by Oliver Hart, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, and Luigi Zingales, who's a leading economist at University of Chicago, which sort of challenges that idea and says, well, if you're trying to, you know, it, it's, it's sort of an accident of history that we equate shareholder primacy and what shareholders want with maximizing the value of the individual company. And that like a, a more realistic economic appraisal of what shareholders want would take into account like the fact that they're diversified. And I'm not really sure, I haven't totally examined the article, Hartons and Gollies may think about other things that shareholders care about, but I would say you at a minimum have to think about the fact that shareholders as investors are most likely to be diversified. And if you do that, then you're going to expand your view of what you ought to be doing as a director to protect the interests of those shareholders. So interesting. I just, this accident of history, I have to go back to that. It's an accident of history that we ended up with this model that's now being debated hotly. Why do you think it's an accident of history? I'm just curious. There's a lot of reasons. Like I would argue that 75 years ago, like there was this debate in the thirties it was called like the, Burley and Means debate over whether companies, because if you think about it, you, you, historically, you know, you didn't have these widely held companies. Historically, you had like families or small groups of investors and they weren't diversified and they ran the company and they actually, they went to the legislature and asked for the sovereign and they asked for a charter and they got a charter and they said, we're going to do this good thing. You know, we're going to build a bridge or going to have a canal. And that evolved in the 19th century, whereby the early 20th century, you just had these companies would just file a piece of paper and they'd say, we're now a corporation and we have limited liability, and unlimited life and all these great benefits from the state. And we're just going to make money. And so people started saying, wait a second, is, do we really want that? And so there was this academic debate and called the Burley Means debate over whether corporations were run for the benefit of society or for uh, their shareholders. And we kind of settled on shareholders. It wasn't that clear. But I think that sort of post that depression era, post the New Deal, like there was a lot of overlap between the interest of shareholders and the interest of, you know, growing the economy and developing all these medicines and, and much, you know, we're, we just live much longer and not just in the U.S. I mean, like the lifespan and even like sub-Saharan Africa is like so much greater than it was even 25 years ago. So I think there was a lot of overlap and in interest. So nobody really cared. 
And what has happened more recently, we've started to notice that the interests of society and the environment and the interests of companies have diverged. There's a study, I'll tell you there, Schroeder's the, the investment manager did a study of the 2018 public markets. And they looked at listed companies globally. And they said, those companies produce $4.1 trillion in profits. But if you look at the net social benefit cost, they cost society $2.1 trillion, $2.2 trillion. So more than half of their profits were actually just siphoning off value from the planet and from its inhabitants. And fully a third wow. of the publicly listed companies, a third, their social costs, their net social costs exceeded their profits. So they're net value destroyers. Wow. And that's happened because the world has become so interdependent uh, and so complex that it has become like a major way of making money has been externalizing costs. I mean, an example of that would be, you know, in the 50s, scientists figured out that tobacco killed people, you know, especially cigarettes. And, you know, people always talk about, oh, the problem is that shareholders are, are, are too short term. Well, the tobacco came, companies came up with a very long term plan to obscure that research and keep people smoking uh, as they do even today, uh, selling branded cigarettes you know, in the global South and other horrible things. It's terrible for the smokers, but it's also terrible for the economy because that means those people get sick. They're not productive. It means that our productive means are being put to producing tobacco, not better things. Uh, it means people get sick at work and they're, you know, they're, they're not as good as natural capital. I mean, as human capital. And so I think what happened is that the accident of history was that the overlap like has been reduced between what's in the interest of, of maximizing profits and what's in the interests of stakeholders. I'm just sitting here. There's so much to take in from what you're saying, <laughs> but thank you for going in deeper on the accident of history. There's some great report and the debate from the 1930s you mentioned, and we'll be sure to get links from you to put in the resources for this episode, as well as your article, of course. Where do you where do you think we go from here? I mean, what what do you propose? What are you trying to do with the shareholder comments? To it sounds like kind of your life's work now is is to help. Uh, maybe is it to realign the interests of companies and company shareholders, portfolio level, um, investors, society. I I'm asking. I don't want to put words in your mouth. This this is really a question. Yeah, let me let me quickly say that you know the title of the article is what people get wrong about ESG, and so right you know, we, we haven't gotten back to that yet. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. We're talking about this like this issue of like the you know the difference in interest between companies and 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 their shareholders, and what I want to you know and and people listening may be saying, but wait a second, there's a whole ESG movement going on, and in fact there's a backlash you know among people like Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis. Uh, and others like against the ESG movement. So it is important to say that for the last decade, investors have been focusing on the fact that if you don't think as an investor about 
climate change and inequality uh, and diversity, equity, and inclusion and deforestation and all these, all these risks, if you don't think about those, you're not going to do well as an investor. But what I'll say is, for the most part, that, that, that ESG movement, and, and you can buy funds now from BlackRock and other big asset managers that are focused on ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. For the most part, those funds focus on enterprise risk. So they'll say, if you're a, an oil and gas company and you just keep reinvesting in more drilling and you don't think about renewables and don't think about shifting to cleaner forms of energy, then your company isn't going to do well. And if they're spending money buying reserves, those reserves might get stuck in the ground, stranded assets. And so th there is a movement of investors focused on environmental and social issues. But for the most part, it's focused on the places where a company focus on being more responsible overlaps with treating society better as well. And that's great because to the extent that you can have win-win opportunities, those are easy. But, but those, I would say, are low-hanging fruit. And, you know, I'd also say that it kind of raises the question of, well, wait a second, if this is just how to run a business so that it long-term is successful, why would these diversified shareholders be experts in that? Isn't that why they hire management? So why are they telling management what to do? And from, from my perspective, and what I talk about in the article is, for all the reasons we've been discussing, I think there's a conflict of interest between management and, and their you know, corporate executives and their diversified shareholders. And a lot of times when you say conflict of interest, people say, well, that's bad. And it's really not. We used to always say this is in corporate law. It's a state of affairs that you have to figure out how to address. It's, it's okay that people have differing interests. And sometimes the person who's like in charge of doing something for you also has a conflicting interest and you just have to figure out how to deal with that. So from, from my perspective and what I wrote that article about is how do you shift the focus of ESG from being just on these win-win opportunities to really focusing on the conflict and saying, look, management's expert in how to make this company successful and how to make it more profitable. But we want to make sure as diversified shareholders that they're doing that, that they're maximizing return within boundaries that assure that they're not maximizing return by externalizing costs that we're going to re-internalize in our diversified portfolios. So, wow, so that's that the goal sense. of shareholder commons is to shift the focus of shareholder activism from what they call ESG integration, this win-win idea or enterprise value to a broader focus on, on portfolio value and systemic stewardship. Wow. I'm reeling from the amount of information. <laughs> this is so fascinating. I'm sure our listeners are too. So I just want to repeat one last thing you said. You're talking about moving from, and this is what we talk about all the time, doing ESG. We're always looking, you're exactly right. Where's that win-win? So moving from that way of thinking, I guess, to a way of thinking where we're really more broadly saying, companies, please don't maximize profit by externalizing costs that we're going to have to pay for somewhere else. Right? Yep. 
Like we yep. want you to maximize profit, but don't do so in a way that just externalizes cost. Exactly. And that's, okay. you know, one thing I want to emphasize is that like, I came to this late, right? I sort of described my career arc, like the ideas I'm describing, they, you know, people sort of came upon this idea, like in the late 1990s, early 2000s, Jim Hawley wrote a book uh, about this. I, I can give it to you for your resource section. And, and other people sort of talked about this. And there's a really, there's a really good book you should put in your resource section called Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, which is only like a, a year old, uh, written by um, John Lukumnik and, and that same uh, James Hawley, that really goes through this theory. And, you know, if we add anything to it at the shareholder commons, it's how to operationalize that idea. Because a lot of people, you know, you explain to them, they go, yeah, that makes perfect sense, of course. But then, like, how do you ever operationalize that? And so, like what we want to do at the shareholder commons is get people to see this conflict. I think the number one important thing is to get people, because right now, ESG, you know, you go and you negotiate, you engage with management and you sort of negotiate with them about how far they're going to go. And once you recognize that you can't give management a veto because they have the wrong incentive, right? They're, you know, we we lard chief executives with like tens of millions of dollars of equity in their company. But that's just incentivizing them to externalize more costs if, if that'll be what, what gets the stock price up. And wow. so once you see that, then you see that it's the shareholders, not managers, that have the incentive to set those boundaries. And which, so, so, what, so it really changes the way you think about activism which ought to be leveling the playing field so that if you have a, let's say you're a, you know, a, a logistics company that has lots of fleets of vehicles. Well, let's just tell all those companies that new acquisitions for their fleet shouldn't have anything coming out of the tailpipe, all electric vehicles, because they're never going to make that decision on their own. If you go negotiate with them, they'll say, well, how about 2035? And, you know, I don't blame them. They don't have an incentive. It's not their job, but I think it is. If you're a, if you run a, an index fund, I would say so, so that what matters to your beneficiaries, the people, your clients who buy into that index fund, what matters to them is having a, um, you know, an economy that works into the future. I would say it is their job mm. to insist to use their corporate power, which is largely the power of of the franchise, the power to vote against directors to vote for shareholder proposals, they should be using uh, that power to establish what we call guardrails um, to keep people on the, on the non-externalizing path. Wow. So should we, I'm only, I'm half joking here, but should, instead of management getting only stock in their own company, should they be getting stock of a, of an index fund? Yeah. So um, in a different, <laughs> in a different book, uh, John Lukumnik and he, uh, uh, it was also, um, I forget the, who the other authors were, Stephen Davis and David Pitt Watson. Uh, they said the road to hell is paved with stock link compensation. So one <laughs> idea is to just like get rid of stock link compensation. I think the other idea would be to, you know, to have clawbacks that basically say, 
it's still a good incentive because if yeah. with any guardrails value, that's good. Yeah. But we're going to have, you know, ESG metrics. And it's not just we give you a bonus if you do something good about ESG. It's that if it turns out that the way you supported the stock price was to not fix the tailpipe thing uh, so that you were, you know, mm. you weren't on a path to 1.5, you know, parasol and world, then we're going to take back your, your stock. So mm. you're, you're motivated with stock, but you only get to keep the stock if you're not externalizing costs. So I think there's ways to do it. People haven't, you know, given that serious thought, but I, I think they're starting. Rick, this has been just a wealth of information. And thank you for bringing me back. I was like ready to get to the next steps. And you're like, wait a second, we haven't talked about ESG yet. Thank you, because it's ESG decoded. So I appreciate you um, bringing it back to that. Um, I think this is just, just so much information for folks to think about and really just paradigm shifts in thinking and, and more broadly. But I want to give you a chance to, to wrap to wrap it up. And I think we'll have to just do another episode. So we're going to have to just dive a little deeper because I know you have um, a few interesting shareholder proposals and sort of deeper in the weeds type uh, examples to talk about. But I think this is really a lot for, for folks to take in. So I think we should end it here. But let me give you a chance to provide any closing thoughts and sort of that, I guess, back to my question of what, what the future is, what you're what you're doing at Shareholder Commons, and if you have anything else you want to share. Yeah, look, I would say if people, if this, if this is interesting to people, there'll be things in the resources. Look at look at the case studies. Uh, the climate case study kind of spells all this out, and you know, we'll we'll refresh you and and sort of go a little deeper. But it's got some summary provisions too, so you don't have to read all 50 pages of it. I think it, I think it will be a helpful guide. You know. Those are you who are in the like, you know, investing industry, finance industry. You know, we have a, a newsletter that goes out once a month. Uh, it's, it won't bother you too much. And we try to just give people interesting information so you can subscribe to that. Reach out like we're, you know, we are, you know, I really do think that you, you use the term paradigm shift. And, and like, I hate to say that because it sounds like so grandiose, but we are trying to change the paradigm. We think that there's a bad paradigm and that if we could, like I said earlier, once you see this conflict, you can't unsee it. And so really like our big goal is to get this idea out in the world because we think it'll, you know, it'll, it will replicate itself like, like any good meme, because the more you hear it and the, the more you see it and see examples of it, and the more you find people to talk to, about it, you know, the, the further it will travel. Um, as you said, we, we, we help people with shareholder proposals. Um, and so if you're somebody who's interested in putting in a shareholder proposal along these lines, we will help you with that. It just the business model of my organization, the Shareholder Commons, is that we're a nonprofit. We're 100% philanthropically funded. So we help investors, diversified investors, pursue these goals. There's lots of tools on our website that you can use, voting guidelines, mandates for that you can take to your investment managers, and all this is provided for free. Well, there's the call to action for all of our meme makers. If you have the technical ability and graphic design ability to make a meme about this, <laughs> we want to see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I just can't thank you enough, Rick. It's been 
fascinating conversation. I've definitely had a lot of aha moments and we look forward to hearing from listeners about your reflections on this. As always, you know, just so grateful to our audience for listening and staying with us past the 40 minute mark. It's just so fascinating. So thank you for being here, Rick. And we will include all of those resources mentioned in the resource booth for the episode. Um, and we'll have to have you back. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Uh, been a been a pleasure. Absolutely.